0: Why don't we begin by reading Psalm 76, and then I'll pray, and and we'll jump in and talk about this, and probably should have some time uh, to have some Q&A as well. All right, this is Psalm 76. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah God is known, his name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic in the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse, lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you and the remnant of wrath uh, you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, uh, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared uh, by the kings of the earth. Okay, let me uh, pray and and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity that is ours to look into your word once again. We ask that you would help us to understand it and that you would be glorified in and through it. Uh, Thank you uh, for uh, this psalm and for all the psalms of Asaph. We uh, praise you for this uh, selection that you inscribed indelibly and uh, for our edification in this part of your psalter. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. You all would make good Presbyterians. Uh, Even better Baptists. Um, So remember, we've been looking at the Psalms of Asaph. Um, This collection, which begins with Psalm 50, and then 73 to 83, the Asaphites were these temple officiants. And Psalm 50 begins with a claim against which these other psalms should be read, namely that God is not silent and he uh, speaks out of the heavens, his judgment does. And then Psalm 73 to 83 are individual test cases against that claim. Uh, That's what I've been suggesting. And then we've also been looking at how this motif of silence appears again and again uh, in different ways. Uh, in these psalms so anyway uh, i thought that we'd uh, go through uh, this psalm and let me explain some things and then if you have questions why don't you uh, let them uh, pile up and then i'll budget some time at the end so that we can have a discussion um, but there's a fair amount of material here so maybe i'll just plow through i promise i won't do what bob godfrey does you know he always runs it up right against the clock and he says any time for oh i guess we don't have any time and then it's a and, of course, their Sunday school is before worship, so then, you know, it's like, oh, we've got to get over to the worship, you know, and, uh, but I won't do that, all right? Even though that's a pretty tricky technique. Um, sometimes I use that at the seminary if i got uh, a bunch of rambunctious people. All right, I open with this novel. You've probably heard of Elie Wiesel, a Nobel Prize winner, Holocaust survivor uh, who wrote numerous books about reckoning with the Holocaust. And so you can read that there. He's been known as one of the modern authors who's very much uh, put forward in his writings, uh, the idea of silence. Uh, It's a very moving story uh, about um, when they have this forced march, which was based upon a a historical forced march of, of which he was a part and many, many died, uh, of a uh, violin-playing uh, child Who's he falls asleep, finally, because he's so exhausted and he wakes up in the morning and the child is dead, and uh, silence through this whole narrative plays a pretty uh, significant part. Uh, the unique contribution since we've been thinking about silence that this psalm makes is that when God speaks from the heavens, the earth is now uh, reduced to silence. So even though... Some of the modern writers who have tried to understand the role of silence in these psalms, or the absence of God generally, so-called absence of God, um, they've missed this aspect, namely that um, when you're attuned to silence, it's interesting seeing what happens uh, in these psalms, and here the earth is actually reduced to silence as opposed to God being uh, silent. Um, So, we've been trying to familiarize ourselves with what genre these psalms fall into. Last week, we weren't overly confident about a genre. I said, sit lightly on that category. Sometimes you can discern what genre classification a psalm belongs to, sometimes not. This seems to be a hymn, uh, particularly a Song of Zion, so there's a whole group there on page 2 listed, 46, 48, 76, 84, 87, 121, and 122, um, that all have this major tenet of the Davidic covenant and Yahweh choosing Zion as his place of his uh, divine presence. So we can see these patterns in all those Psalms. This fits pretty well in that. Um, remember Zion or Jerusalem, communicates especially in the temple, being there communicates God's presence. We talked about that with uh, Psalm 74 with the destruction of the temple and why that was so uh, bewildering to them. Uh, We don't know exactly the um, original historical composition point for this psalm. Um, There is this English... Uh, translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. And they stick a little line at the top. They add to it uh, saying uh, for the Assyrians, so in the time when the Assyrian invasion happened. And so this might be the famous uh, invasion of Sennacherib in sec- relayed in Second Kings chapter 19 um, <clears throat> when he and his henchmen, mostly his henchmen, come and taunt the uh, Jews who are all surrounded behind the safe walls uh, there in um, Jerusalem. And um, you remember, and this somewhat coheres with uh, Hezekiah's uh, leading the Jews to withstand the onslaughts of these marauding enemies as they're hiding behind the walls. And then they wake up in the morning, they're all dead, uh, according to the biblical account. Uh, this was a real historical um, occasion, this invasion, because in the British Museum we have a lot of reliefs of this very invasion, uh, showing the attempts of the Assyrians trying to uh, get in. That's one possibility. Um, although that's possible, um, the text doesn't require that interpretation. Okay? So sometimes in these psalms we know what the historical occasion is, for the psalm was, like tonight on Psalm 34, I'll actually argue that we do know the historical occasion uh, for this psalm. Uh, Others we don't know uh, for sure. So even though the Septuagint has this added line in here, we don't know that that was the original uh, occasion for this psalm to be penned. And it really doesn't matter. Um, And in fact, more recently, most uh, Bible Students and scholars have uh, looked at this as talking about a future age. Um, I use the word eschatological perspective. What I mean by that is looking to the very last days, way off in the future. And um, when you begin to look at the psalm through those lenses or glasses, it also has a lot of explanatory power for statements in the psalm as well. Um, So at the end of the day, I want to be perfectly balanced, uh, always. Uh, And so um, it's probably hearkening back, looking back, as well as uh, looking uh, forward. So you can see this quote in the middle of the second page um, from one commentator. It says, invites the reader to look backward and forward, but especially to the latter, namely forward, to the time when the resplendent majesty of Yahweh will be demonstrated in great acts of rebuke and judgment. The shape of the future lies in the past. Um, So I found as I was working on this that I think that's uh, the direction that we probably want to think about, is uh, not be ignorant of the past possible context, but also... In a nutshell, a lot of these psalms, as in a lot of places of Scripture, if you've been paying close attention to my ministry of the Word, I'm doing this all the time, is uh, there's one, um, there's one um, single literal meaning, but that single literary meaning of any text that we're dealing with in the Old Testament can have multiple reference points in the future. Okay. And I think that's the kind of thing that we see here even in this psalm. Let me explain why. <clears throat> so I think that the psalmist is speaking uh, to events that have to do with the last day, days. Uh, notice the beginning of the psalm. Uh, it opens up with some clever imagery that you may not notice on the surface. But it says, To the choir master with stringed inter- instruments, a psalm so- of Asaph a song. In Judah is known, his name is great in Israel. His abode, and the word there is sukkah, abode, okay, has been established in Salem. His dwelling place, the word there in Hebrew, as you can see on the paper, if you have it, is Maon in Zion. Now, why is that important? First of all, um, I don't do this just to spread my wings and bring in Hebrew, although that's nice. I feel a little bit out of sorts if I don't hear some Hebrew mentioned every day. And um, so uh, you may have heard of sukkah, a dwelling place, um, <clears throat> before, or abode. Uh, the Jews have this festival called Sukkot, what has to do with booth, feast of booth, So if you've ever been in a place where a lot of Jews reside, like New York City or Washington, D.C., Uh, certain times in the year you can actually see they'll set up uh, these booths in their driveways uh, out in their communities, and they're celebrating uh, the Feast of Booths to remember their pilgrimage uh, during the wilderness wanderings and how God was faithful. So that pilgrimage, that celebration of that ritual, has to do with reminding them of God's faithfulness. Ma'on is a little bit more rare of a word, But if you look at the bottom of that page, if you have it in front of you, uh, where it says, JPS Study Bible says, Hebrew sukkah and mo'on have two sets of associations. One, God's protective pavilion, the temple or the sky, and two, the lion's den. So now that's a very important point to get for the argument of the psalm, which you may not get if you're just reading on the surface, and I'm trying to open up and explain to you. Um, God is often portrayed as a lion in Scripture. And that's often done in order to impress upon one uh, God's majesty and fearsome strength, okay, uh, before the king of the forests, uh, namely the lion. And there were real lions living uh, in Judah and Jerusalem and Palestine, Canaan at this time through a series of wars, <clears throat> deforestation, Uh, There's no longer any lions there except maybe in a zoo. Uh, But there used to be a lot of lions there, and it was a fearsome creature uh, to the Israel, the Hebrews of old. So, for example, you can see in Jeremiah 25, verses 30 to 31, I quote that down at the bottom of the page there from the ESV. You have this association of images brought together. You, therefore, shall prophesy against them all these words. Say to them, the Lord will roar. Okay, and this is a verb that's used often in the prophets, especially Amos. Um, Amos, over and over again, even though it doesn't say, no, it does say lion at one place, but uh, over and over again, the Lord will roar, okay? Um, And um, it happens in Amos frequently. The Lord will roar from on high and his holy habitation, ma'on, utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked uh, he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Maybe you've been at the zoo and heard the lion roar before, or at the wild animal park. Uh, it's, it's, it, it gets your attention. And of course, if they're outside of a cage, I suppose it would really uh, get your attention. Or, if you got attacked by a puma, did you hear about the guy who strangled the puma uh, up up the road? That was something <laughs> It's like he gets gets taken down by a puma puma, and he takes the puma out, you know, killed it with his bare hands and uh wow um, so anyway um so um you know, we're all familiar with this imagery since C.S. Lewis aligned the, the witch in a wardrobe, right? And Aslan. And, uh, she'll come back in a minute to that. So um, <clears throat> so anyway, on the next page it's says, although the Hebrew word for holy habitation, ma'on, uh, is not used there in Amos, it is there. Uh, the Lord roars from Zion, addresses his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of shepherd mourn in the top of Carmel withers. So you have this imagery. I'm just trying to pepper this with some illustrations. Later in Amos, there's this favorite quote. I've lost it now because it's been so long, but Ryan, we should get together and, and memorize this so you can use it on your kids. Uh, this lion in lion uh, uh, Amos says, a lion has word who will not listen. So I memorized that in Hebrew, and whenever the kids didn't do what I told them, you know, like clean their bedroom or whatever, then I'd come in and it's like they, you know, Straighten up and get their work done. All right. Um, so anyway, um, he doesn't strike me as much of a lion, more like a teddy bear. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so maybe Elizabeth memorizes. Mem- mem- I don't know. Anyway, a conflation of meanings here uh, seem to be coming together in the psalm. Okay. Um, so why this? Why this imagery? The more I meditate on this psalm, the more I kept going back to thinking about the Testament of Jacob. So this is a very famous passage in... See, I turned to the right of my Bible. I've got to go to the left. Uh, it's a very famous uh, chapter at the end of Genesis 49. Why don't you turn there with me? Uh, because this becomes almost programmatic uh, for many places in the rest of the Bible, Okay. And it's always important when you're looking at literature or writings to look for programmatic statements, okay? So <clears throat> I won't mention any names, but, you know, I served on a denominational committee once where somebody was trying to throw a couple of my colleagues under the bus, and and I knew where they were going, so I prepared beforehand and made copies of pages of their books that were programmatic statements because they were basically cherry-picking statements from their books, and, and then they brought up the point, and I said, well, you have to reckon with Professor Horton's programmatic statement on this page. Read this, or Professor Van Drunen's programmatic statement on this page. Okay? So that's one of the dangers today in using tablets and such is, you know, you can do searches without reading from beginning to end and recognize context, okay? So this is one of those programmatic statements, and you remember this is Jacob blessing his sons. And this is not just like, you know, the old man's dying, so let's call the children around and tell them who gets what in the trust. Okay, this is different. This is, if you look at the beginning of this, uh, it's called the Testament of Jacob. It says, then Jacob called his sons and said to them, gather yourselves together so I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Okay, that's akhirit hayamim. And that means, when that phrase is used in the Old Testament, that means what must needs come to be. In other words, what is definitely going to happen? It's like a prophecy. It's not just the father saying, um, okay, you know, if you go through here, um, Reuben, my first barn, okay, uh, you, don't, you, don't get, uh, you don't get a portion of dad's inheritance because... You did something untoward uh, with your mother, uh, my wife. And, um, and Simeon and Levi, the next two sons, you don't get a portion uh, because, you remember, they took revenge into their own hands, okay, uh, by tricking these guys into being circumcised and then uh, adult males while they were down, uh, you know, going around and dispatching them with their swords. And that was abhorrent to God and to Jacob. But then he comes to Judah, and it says, "Okay, this is, um, you know, this is like Tolkien. As long as we're on, you know, Tolkien and Lewis and stuff, things are now set in motion, which must come to pass." Okay, and uh, so this is this is what uh, he's doing. You know, this has to happen, right? So he gets to Judah in verse eight, and he says, "Judah, uh, your brothers shall praise you." and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Okay? So now this is prophetic because who's in the line of Judah? Singular king, very important, ultimately. David. So here this is prophecy about people bowing down to uh, uh, David and showing allegiance to him. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? In other words, the imagery is, um, you know, uh, once, once this lion gets its, its prey and has it in its mouth, who would dare go up and try and take it out of its mouth? And, even if, and if you're this buff guy who killed this puma with his bare hands. I mean, you still, you wouldn't go up and dream of doing that. In Alaska, most people buy, uh, die from bear. Um, Accidents getting mauled and eaten by Kodiak bears, which are huge. I mean, they, they go all the way up that beam right there to there. There's, like, have one in the airport where we used to fly and my wife would come up to about here on it, you know, because it's like this. Well, how do most people get eaten by those man eaters? Well, they mess with the food they already killed. Like, you know, they shoot a deer and then they leave, they come back, and the bears got the deer. Well, time to just let the the bear have the deer, okay? Don't try and get your, you know, go shoot another deer. There are a dime a dozen up there, all right? And uh, don't try and get that or, um, you know, so it's not that hard. Ryan can tell you some really interesting stories about deer hunting, <laughs> which I'm not going to bring up right now. But anyway, uh, so... Um, but um, that's what's going on here. So this, this military imagery making this impression. And then he says, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, okay, the king, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay, so what's going on with this? So military ruling imagery. Interestingly, you have the word for scepter there. And then you have a pun about the descendants of Judah because the imagery is, sorry, I hope this doesn't get anybody uh, offence, but the imagery is actually the male reproductive organ being between his legs. So basically signaling his progeny uh, will never depart from the throne. He will always have a child on the throne. So um, that's what... The meaning of uh, this is cloaked in, in careful language, okay? Um, <clears throat> the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him and to him the obedience of the peoples. Binding his fold to the vine, his donkey's cold to the choice vine. He's washed the garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes, his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. And then he skips on to um, Zebulun. Okay, so uh, why is this important? Well, because this is probably generating or pushing, if you will, putting literary and theological pressure on later subsequent scriptures. Remember I talked about the rule of faith? Okay, so here's the pattern that's uh, being developed that Irenaeus uh, pushed so hard to use against heretics. So the scriptures show, as we look at individual parts, a pattern that points forward to a king, not a dog. Uh, In this case, Christ, ultimately, through David, okay? And that's the pattern. And interestingly, not only is he paradoxically a military ruler that you don't tangle with, but he also, ironically, brings peace, okay? And um, so this runs all the way up into, I think, uh, the book of Revelation itself. So there I quote uh, Revelation 5, verses 3 to 5. No one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered uh, so that he can open the scroll with the seven seals. Okay. So all the way through the Psalms, all the way through the prophets, all the way up into the New Testament, and even to the end, to the book of Revelation. So Christ is the one who is to be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, Now, as if this wasn't mind-bending enough, now look what John does in Revelation 5, verse 6. And between the throne of the four living creatures... And among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God uh, sent out into the earth. Well, I thought you were just talking about a lion, but now you're talking about a gentle lamb. Why is John doing this? Okay. And notice that he before was talking about what he heard, namely the lion. But now he talks about what he sees, namely the lamb. Now, in light of our discussion last week, this is what some authors do. John obviously was turned off by all this warrior imagery and all this ferocity, all this, you know, lion attack kind of imagery. I mean, that's Old Testament. That's bad. That's negative. So we've got to soften it up and make it a lamb. What do you think of that idea? (laughs) No, that's nonsense, okay? Um, He has moved the imagery from lion to lamb in this subtle pivot, okay? Uh, But I don't think it's to get rid of the aggressive connotations. Um, Rather, um, uh, instead of trying to choose to silence uh, the lamb through getting rid of this violent imagery, uh, it seems like... um, The lion imagery for the coming Messiah is is continuing throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, So, for example, you can look at all the way chapter six through twenty, and you can see that uh, the lion imagery continues. Okay. Now, think back to Genesis forty-nine. This is the lion who will dare take its prey, but he will bring peace. Okay. So those seem like two images that don't cohere, cohere. but all the way out to the scriptures, the scriptural writers seem to be uh, comfortable uh, using that. This lion cannot be tamed, John seems to be communicating. So, for example, uh, if you look at John 17:14, 14, uh, John can use imagery in these chapters of a warrior lamb. So now the lamb becomes a warrior, not just a lion. This is like if you remember from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. So Aslan suddenly comes back to life, and uh, Lucy and Aslan get into a wrestling match. And I wish I had a copy. My kids ran off with the copies when they left their houses. Secure all your books when your kids move out of the house. All right? And, uh, but if you remember, to paraphrase, she goes, I don't know if I was like wrestling with a kitty cat or like I was, you know, being mauled by a lion. See, Lewis got it. He didn't want to flatten out these images. He wanted to hold them uh, together, both the lion and the kitty cat, so to speak, or the lamb. Um, So anyway, um, and I don't think you should try and swallow up the uh, sound uh, (coughs) of the lion in Revelation uh, with the sight imagery of the lamb. Um, That would be like seeing the Nutcracker Ballet without an orchestra, um, I said, to Tchaikovsky, which would be unthinkable. Uh, If you don't get the uh, analogy, just think about it. All right, Psalm 76, verse 3 then, back to the psalm. What does this lion do? He breaks the flames, the fiery arrows of the bow, the shield, the sword, the battle. So he's describing this spiritual battle in the most concrete, physical of terms, okay? So back to, if we're going to think about this psalm, not only with a reference to the past, but also what's it teaching us about the future day and the coming of the lion slash lamb? Um, Well, then we can think about this as God's final judgment. Remember, in all these psalms of Asaph, Judgment is a primary theme, so you can't just marginalize it. So here I uh, quote an author named Arndt. It's a rather lengthy quote, but it's worth reading. We have here to learn the gracious deliverance granted by God from bodily enemies, how he breaks all the human earthly power which is turned against the church. For the power of the enemies is human, earthly, fleshly, But the power of the church is spiritual, divine, heavenly. There contend and fight with each other, the spirit and the flesh, spiritual power by faith and prayer, earthly power by the sword, the bow, the spear. Thus fought Goliath and David, Hezekiah and Sennacherib, Jehoshaphat, Moabite, Asa and the thousands of the Moors. And thus from the beginning the church has fought against all the power of tyrants and will still continue to fight until the end of the world. Yea, the church gains the victory and conquers through the cross, according to the beautiful figure of the 19th chapter of Revelations, where we read that the Son of God rides upon a white horse, and out of his mouth there goes a sharp sword, and that there follows him a great army. And then he continues, Within the spiritual as well as the external domain, the Lord reveals himself as one who breaks the arrows of those who are the enemies of his church, and of his faithful uh, ones. So I think the important point here to see is this is militant imagery that ultimately brings peace, but notice that it's spiritual. It's not the coercion that the state exercises by means of the sword. So what are our weapons? Prayer, the word of God, preaching, So our weapons are spiritual, not physical. Okay? And then the psalm continues in verses 4 to 9. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse, lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you? Uh, when once your anger is roused from the heavens you utter judgment. Now, isn't that interesting? So this, you should notice, is an echo of Psalm 50. Remember I said, is God really silent? No, Psalm 50 said, the heavens declare the judgment of God. He doesn't need all this external ritualistic uh, sacrifice. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But God has spoken. So now, in a little, like, little subtle you know, dig, he 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 hearkens back to that that's an echo he says for the heavens from the heavens, you utter judgment. the earth filled uh, feared and was stilled when God rose to establish judgment to save all the humble, that is the poor of uh the earth okay, so um you can skip over that next part, but uh it's important here um, to uh think. Uh, about the poor that he saves. Uh, But even before that, top of the next page, talk about um, how we should understand what's going on here with the mountains of prey. It's a very difficult uh, passage. Um, But God is being described as more resplendent than the mountains rich with game. Okay, so majestic. So recently up in Spokane to visit my mother and my cousin was there from Montana who hunts. And he showed me, maybe some of you have seen this kind of thing, but he showed me um, this video of all these elk uh, that were running out of the mountains. Oh, my goodness. It looked like dances with wolves, you know, with this reconstructed, you know, with, with, with all these buffalo before they were slaughtered. It just went on and on and on, just herds. Hundreds, if not thousands of elk, full-grown, huge elk stampeding right off the highway. Made it easy for the hunters. they just take them from the highway uh, to try and have a little elk thinning. And, uh, but it, it was something to behold and to watch, and the video was capturing the sound as well as, well as the sight. I think that's exactly the kind of thing that's uh, going on here. Um, so... Um, Now, though, in the latter verses, so down around verses 9 and 10, uh, important here that we should understand, the imagery here so far has been heaven, uh, describing God who speaks and judges from heaven. But now the imagery changes towards the earth. Okay? And uh, he talks about God uh, defending uh, the poor. Okay? So, um, um, oh, let's see here. Oh, I don't have it in front of me. If someone has uh, Psalm 76 open, read. It's either verse 8, 9, or 10, where he makes reference to uh, the poor. Uh, thank you very much. hmm Yeah, 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 let's see. Oh, here it is, verse 9, okay. From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth filled and was still... When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Okay, now, we've got to talk about that word for a minute, because I hate to do this, because it can potentially undermine people's confidence in their English Bible, but humble is not a good translation. <laughs> it means poor, but it doesn't mean like poor in spirit, but that's how they're translating it. You know, like, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, like in the Beatitudes. Well, that's not what it means. The poor, and this word here in the uh, Psalter, is those who have no recourse to legal aid. So look, at this time, uh, if, if, you're, um, if someone slanders you or accuses you of a crime, uh, if you could afford to in ancient Israel, then you would hire your own lawyer to advocate for you and hopefully vindicate your case. If that was not the case, if you were a poor person, then you had no recourse to legal aid, so then you would have to go somewhere else to get your legal aid. Guess where that would be? Think First King's 3. You know with the two women arguing over the baby, who do they go to? They go to the judge, namely to the king. So if you can't hire, like, a Harvard lawyer, then, you know, you got to go to Solomon, which may be better anyway. And uh, so uh, then then you go to the king, and you get your advocacy from him, or you get your judgment from him. So when this verse says that, this is very important. You'll see why in a minute. When he says, From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the poor of the earth. So you should be thinking, those that have no recourse to legal aid on their own. Okay? All right. Now, that's established. We go on and finish up the rest of it. So verse 10 says, For the wrath of man praises you, and with the remnant of wrath you gird yourself for ESV. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, uh, the remnant of wrath... Uh, you will uh, put on like a belt, okay? So, uh, and then when you look at, um, stand by, um, the last two verses which bring uh, a conclusion here, uh, a fitting conclusion, Uh, notice it says in verses 11 to 12, make your vows to the Lord, your God, and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Um, Okay, so what does this mean? To cut off um, perhaps grape clusters, or does it mean to make enclosed or inaccessible? So you'll see different translations render it different ways. The ESV says, um, uh, verses 11 and 12, Just a minute. Now I am there and I'll read it. Make your vows, the Lord, God, perform them. Let all around bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes. That's good. That's what it means. Not to restrain their pride. So sometimes people argue that this means like to make enclosed or to restrain the pride of, um, you know, breaks the spirit of these. And look, now we're back towards the end. Right up in Revelation again, I would suggest. So, for example, verse uh, 18 and 19 of chapter 14, as I say in the paper. Another angel came out of the altar, and the angel who had authority, so this is Revelation 14, 18, 19, second to last page, if you're there. says, another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one with a sharp sickle. Put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Um, Paul, just like we were talking about, you know, last week. So here's the great reversal that the psalm anticipated at the end of ages. At the end of the ages, God's sickle brings about the final harvest of the earth And the power structures of the world are reversed. Now, it is interesting, and this is why I spent time explaining to you the idea of the poor at the end. Okay, so we'll conclude pretty quickly on this thought um, here. Let me just get a little more out, and then we'll have time for questions. Uh, Many would turn this psalm into an application about the horizontal mission of the church. That is to say, the meaning and the message of God as judge applies to reclaiming the present creation in our kingdom activities and showing compassion and mercy to the downtrodden. Uh, let me give you an example for those of you who have the is quoted at the end, at the bottom of the page. So the judgment aims at peace. It represents help and salvation for the poor, verse 9. With lofty words, Psalm 76 touches on things eschatological, and the church of the New Testament will have to inquire anew about the salvific governance of the Lord of history. The Old Testament is a permanent witness to the political, historical, and this worldly relevance of the presence of God in the church. It is the Lord of heaven and earth who is here present. It is the Lord of the nations who shows his power. Every limitation or spiritualization of the statements of this psalm would falsify the meaning and the intention of it. Okay, close quote. I think this is dead wrong. <laughs> because uh, the psalm does present uh, uh, an all sovereign, omnipotent God, okay, as much as any. Uh, It does communicate concern for the poor, but remember, we're not to spiritualize the notion of the poor. Uh, It's those who have no legal uh, recourse for some kind of aid and defense and are liable to tyranny and oppression of others. Uh, However, uh, we should always recognize, as the Reformed Church has through the centuries, that even though God is sovereign over all, uh, he rules the world, Uh, differently according to the kingdom of grace and according to the secular world as uh, as the king over the universe as second person of the godhead he is king over the entire universe and rules ultimately over it but in the church as the mediator of the covenant of grace that's how he rules and he makes known his rule through the revelation of his word so, we should be careful about making these kinds of distinctions, even when we're looking at uh, the psalm. Um, the church has primary concerns in preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, and administering church discipline. Uh, this is not about uh, a psalm by way of extension of that last quote uh, to raise that the church's mission in light of this is to raise the economic plight of those outside the church. That's not the mission of the church. <coughs> That may be the mission of a civil government, but that's not the mission of a church. And I don't think you can make the psalm say that. Well, you can make the psalm say that if you're going to twist its words and meaning, but you can't make this psalm say that in and of itself. Um, So, there's many who have used this well-worn phrase that I've alluded to even in this class, don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. I think actually the flip or inverse of that is true. Uh, Be so heavenly-minded that you are some earthly good. (laughs) Uh, In other words, this psalm is really focusing, uh, whatever its historical past reference, it's it's focusing on the end when Jesus is going to come back, like Revelation 19, riding on his white horse as a majestic warrior God who will bring peace, and he will ultimately vindicate uh, his people and the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed. Okay, Uh, but um, but this ultimately is um, not talking about some kind of horizontal mission of the church, but rather to get the church to focus on uh, what will be the ultimate outcome of Jesus's uh, ministry, so much so that we can't help but um, be some earthly good. I'm not going to read this quote. You can read it or get it yourself from uh, the late Gerhardus Voss. Uh, At the very end, though, um, he does uh, make the important point that the foremost of all these principles is that the end of existence for all things lies in God and that therefore to religions must be assigned the highest place in every ideal condition contemplated as a goal. To work for the amelioration, in other words, the better of the world, betterment of the world, without putting at the top of its program the bestowal upon this world, of the baptism of religion as the primal requisite should be impossible for the church so long as she retains a clear consciousness of her own specific calling. Um, So in other words, um, to wrap up and open it up for questions or clarification, Gohardus had his ministry in the middle of the social gospel movement, where in the late 19th century, early 20th century, people tried to turn the prophets and the Psalms and the Old Testament into all about the horizontal mission of the church to change society uh, for the better. And uh, Voss lived right in the middle of all that. And he said, all these things like Amos talking about poverty and about exploitation and all, those are just presenting problems. The real problem is the problem of the heart and the problem of you know, the religious sphere and impetus. Um, and that's what the prophets and the psalmists is ultimately inveighing against. So that's what I'm trying to communicate there at the end. Okay, that's a lot for 35 minutes. Uh, questions, clarification, comments? Interesting, again, we see God set forth as judge here without any equivocation that it is the case. that nice. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Sorry. You said this was your sister's grandson. Okay. Well, sorry for your loss. First of all, it, did he die violently? It sounds like. What was his name? Jacob. At the end, we'll pray uh, for he and his family, and sorry for your loss. Yeah, and it, and it sounds like you know you haven't gone into detail. I think um, uh, you know that's what <laughs> the scriptures bring us ultimately to the point where where we realize that the problems for, you know, violence, the problems for racism, the violence for all these horizontal social issues, is ultimately to be found in the gospel, right? I mean, that's what ultimately will bring peace, even though there might be some... Right. Right. How old How old was this... Uh... Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. Right, one thing that comes to mind. Yeah, what do you say? Uh, sometimes you say nothing, right? They don't make the mistake of jo- Job's friends and try and give an answer when what might be best is silence, right? Or like I teach my students, you know, you don't go to the hospital room and pull out Romans and start quoting Romans 8.28, you know, all things work together for good when somebody's in the middle of, of all that. Sometimes it's best just to be present right and listen and and um, but on the long term, when you're talking to people or you're communicating to other youth, it sounds like you're 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 suggesting so that they don't go down the same path A- at the end of the day, you're right, these ultimate answers coming from the psalms or from the prophets have uh, tremendous traction and importance right that we're all going to give account for our lives and the God will judge even though he restrains his justice now, right? So maybe there's a time later for that, even, you know, or among among that circle. So but I, I'm sorry for for your loss and your sister's loss. Jacob, was it? Yeah, at the end we'll pray for him. Other comments, questions? We're supposed to end at 10 after. After. okay we're already over let's just uh, close in prayer and I'll pray for Jacob and all those who had contact with him And, and um. Father thank you for your goodness to us uh, Lord uh, we are reminded uh, not only by this psalm and um, being reduced to silence uh, the earth is uh, but also for um, the profound realities that surround us that we often suppress, including the presence of death and um, the grim reaper and and the evil uh, in this world with which uh, we have contact and sometimes the foolishness that we see round about us. Uh, Father, help us uh, always to turn to you Uh, and help us to know that we have a refuge in you, uh, in which we can hide and which we can bring solace. Uh, We pray for Jacob's family and especially for this grandmother. We ask that you, the father of all consolation, would bring consolation to her in due time uh, so that she can bring consolation to others as you have provided consolation to her. And Father, as you give opportunity, help them to be winsome, and tactful, uh, but also not to equivocate on ultimate truths if they have the opportunity to testify to the hope that we have in Christ, uh, looking forward to the world to come when there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more violence, uh, no more sin, and all the chaos uh, will be gone. Uh, We ask this all in Jesus' name, bless us this afternoon, be with us on our uh, on our trip home, and and give us traveling mercies, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.